Open your Bible to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. We're going to finish this section that we began a few weeks ago and really taking our time with what the Lord is showing us. What is He revealing to us through these verses, these 12 verses? Last week we spoke on how the Apostle Paul was sharing to the Thessalonians to walk in purity. And today we go from purity to love. I want you to remember that this morning, walking in purity, but now walking in love. In fact, the title of the message today is that, walking in love. And the reason why we need to learn how to walk in love is to have a brotherly, orderly life. This is the exhortation that he gives to us here as we go to the fourth chapter, the ninth verse, have a brotherly, orderly life. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. And if he's coming again, we must know how we are to live our lives. From verse 1 of chapter 4, it began that we are to live our lives in a way that pleases God. What is that? In holiness, in sanctification. That means that our lives are to be set apart from the world, from sin, set apart for God's service. Your life now as you've been born again of the Spirit, is to be set apart for the service of Jesus Christ now in holiness. But not only does he tell us what we are to do, he says why we are to do this. Why is it that we should walk in holiness? Because this is the will of God. Remember that. The reason why we are to live holy lives is because this is the will of life, that we abstain from sexual sin. And then he tells us how we are to do this. And we are to do this by exercising self-control, including over our own bodies, and submission to the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So you see here, he tells us what to do to be holy. Why to do it, it's the will of God. How to do it, self-control and submission to the Holy Spirit. So we go from holiness, notice this is how God wants you to live your life, to harmony and honesty. Today we're going to talk about how to walk in harmony, in love with one another, and in honesty. Because walking in love produces harmony, and walking in love produces honesty. These are the essentials of Christian growth. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the faith. Maybe today you're saying, I just came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior recently. Or you've been growing up in the faith for many years, reading God's word. Well, I want you to know this. Holiness is lo- and love are things that we will never measure up to the full stature until we get to heaven. We need to continue to grow in holiness and in love. Just think about this. Just as God's love is holy, so our love for God and our love for each other must motivate us to holy living. You know what that means? That if we're walking like Christ, in holiness, in Christ's likeness, then we will be more holy. And the more we are like Christ Jesus, loving and holy, then we will not defraud our brother. That's the last thing where we left off in chapter 4, verse 8, that we would not defraud or cheat or sin against one another. So this is why it's so important that we would know this. Now, there are four practical ways as to what it means to walk in love. I want you to remember these this morning. Number one, love each other more. How are we going to walk in love? This is the exhortation. It starts this way. Love each other more. Write that down today. Remember that. Number two, lead a quiet life. He says to lead a quiet life. Number three, notice this. Remember this. Mind your own business. This is what the Word of God says. Now, I I looked it up. I just want you to know beforehand in the Greek, it still means mind your own business. It doesn't mean something else. And then finally, the last one, work with your own hands. Work with your own hands. I mean, this is so basic that you can miss it sometimes as a Christian. If you want to grow up as a Christian, as a man of God, as a woman that's following the Lord in faith, these are four essentials for Christian growth. Remember that, four essentials for Christian growth. Love each other more, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, 
Work with your own hands. Now, why is he telling them this? He's telling them this because some believers misunderstood the doctrine, the teaching of the return of Jesus Christ. So over the excitement that Jesus is coming soon, what they did is they quit their jobs. They were idle, just waiting for Christ to return, being ineffective in the world today. Now notice, we have a responsibility that we would be a good testimony until Jesus comes. Until he calls us home or until he comes. The coming of Jesus Christ is not an excuse to become idle. Notice that. We don't say, well, Jesus is coming soon. So you know what? I'm not going to pay my debts. I'm not going to pay my bills. I'm going to quit my job. It doesn't matter. He's coming anytime. No, we must have a good reputation and a good testimony as believers of Jesus Christ. He tells them here, be dedicated, a dedicated worker that is honoring the Lord, that is bringing honor to God, that is productive, that is effective. It is not an excuse for irresponsibility because you say Maranatha. In fact, it is more of a reason to live in a way that honors him in light of his return. You see so many people in churches and pastors that overemphasize in the rapture of the church, which we must all know about the rapture of the church, but we must also all know how to live in light of the rapture of the church. He can come right now. He can come tonight. He can come before this message finishes. But also we must be prepared that we live in such a way that brings him honor until he comes. So he begins here with the first exhortation, love each other more until he comes. How more until he comes? In fact, would you stand with me this morning for the reading of his word? And we'll read there beginning in verse 9 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. I'll read the odd verses, and you read the even verses out loud together. He would say this, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So, Lord, we ask that today you would speak to us. Lord, that we would love each other more, lead a quiet life. We would mind our own business and work with our own hands. You've given this exhortation to us from the word that we hold in our hands right now. And according to your word, would you transform us more into the image of your son, Jesus? We pray this all in Jesus' name, and together we said... Amen. You may be seated. The first exhortation here, the first essential for Christian growth is love each other more. And he begins here by giving an explanation of love. Pay attention to this in verse 9. The explanation of love. In fact, this is our measured progress. As a Christian, you should measure your life in terms of love. How does that progress look right now? How does that growth look right now? In fact, he says this. This is the explanation. He goes on in verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. You don't need me to write to you. I shouldn't have to tell you that you should love one another. He's saying there is no reason for me to have to write to you about the importance or the priority of loving one another. Yet, I have to exhort you. However, I have to encourage you. Today, you need to be corrected, Thessalonians. Today, you need to be encouraged and exhorted, maybe even confronted with the truth about loving one another more. Now, notice, in the English language, there's only one way to express love. We always use the word love only. You can say, I love my wife, I love my family, I love my car, I love my house, I love pizza, whatever. You use the same word love. And you're all expressing maybe a different sentiment or emotion, but with the same word, love. 
Well, in the Greek language, there's four words to describe love in a different way. The first word I want you to know about is the word eros. It means a physical or a sensual love. When they would use the word eros, they would say, this is a sensual love, a physical love that I have for another person. Then they have the second word, storge, in the Greek. The word storge, it means a family love or refers to the love that parents have for children or the love that children have for their parents. And then the most commonly known type of love in the Greek language is agape, which is unconditional love, sacrificial love. This is God's love for us. But the love that it's describing here that he says, I have no reason that I should write to you about this is phileo. This is a love that we need to learn more about as Christians. It's where we find the word Philadelphia. In fact, the word Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And phileo here, or brotherly love, what it does, it, it, it underlines the love that believers are to have for one another in the family of faith. This is the kind of love that we should have among Christians, a brotherly love of phileo, a, a love that is included to everyone who is a part of the family of God. It's a deep affection. It's an intimacy of friendship. It's a brotherly love because Christians belong to the same family. This is exactly what he's reminding them. You are part of the same family. This is the kind of love that binds children together under one father. It's a love that is seeking the highest good for the one that is loved or the highest good for the glory of God or for the manifestation of God. And this brotherly love, notice it's emphatic here, which means it's continual or it's a habitual practice. You shouldn't only love someone sometimes. You should always exercise brotherly love, a love that displays that your faith is real. Did you know that that's exactly how you know your faith is real? That you don't only say that you believe in Jesus Christ, but it's demonstrated and the proof of your faith is found in your love. In fact, that's how you know that you're growing in Jesus Christ, that it's expressed this love in deeds, not only in words. That you don't only say, well, I love you, but you also show it. You know how brotherly love looks like? In fact, phileo love looks like kindness. Remember that today because that's exactly what he's referring to. I have no reason that I need to write to you about displaying a love that is demonstrated in kindness. That you should live this out. In fact, what did James tell the church in James chapter 2, verse 14, when speaking of the proof of their faith? He says this, what is a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? How, what, what good is it if someone says they have faith, they believe in Jesus Christ, but they have nothing to show forth? Can faith save him? That type of faith? Or if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, if you see that someone is in need and has any type of need, and one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warm, be filled, but you don't give them the things which they need for the body, does that profit anyone? Absolutely not. How do you know that faith is real? So likewise, in that same manner, if you say you love one another, if you say you're a Christian, and the Holy Spirit is living in you, you're going to demonstrate it by the way that you behave. And he noticed that he says this in verse 9, I have no reason that I should remind you of brotherly love that has to do with the family of faith and kindness. Notice what he says here, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Why is it that he shouldn't have to share this again? Because we're already taught by God to love one another. This is what you've learned from God. He has taught you himself. This is what you know and you're accountable to love one another. In fact, notice, if you're a Christian today, you've been born again, and the Holy Spirit is living in you. I want you to know this very clearly, as the Bible would teach it. If you're a Christian, nobody needs to tell you to love other people. You already know that because the Holy Spirit lives in you. In fact, the Holy Spirit resides in you, and you are taught yourself by God by his spirit, that you are to love other people. In Romans 5, 5, it would say, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. You know what that means? That when you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit 
comes inside of you, dwells in you. The presence of God is living in you. And that also means that he's poured out his love into your heart, that you pour his love to the lives of other people. This is an indispensable sign of a Christian. This means that a believer has passed from spiritual life now or from spiritual death to spiritual life because they love one another. That is the identifying mark that you know this person is saved. Why? They're loving people now. The apostle would say this in 1 John 3. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That shows you truly are a Christian. When you go to work, when you're with your neighbors or with your family, and they see that you are a loving person, it only now shows them that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says that we have God's nature. What does that mean? That we are to become more godly or more like him. That we take on this divine nature. In 2 Peter, it would say that. And if we were to take on this divine nature, the nature of God, we are to be more godly. Then notice, one of the attributes of God in his essence of who he is, is that he is love. The Bible says this, he who does not love does not know God because God is love. What does that mean? That if you possess his nature and his nature is love, we are to be more loving people. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And not only are we now carrying the divine nature of God because God is love and we're loving other people, but it's also an important basis for evangelism. So that this world that is filled with self-serving individuals and culture and trends and method that this world is all about self, they would recognize a difference in the lives of Christians. And the genuine love of believers would attract others to follow the faith. Jesus himself said this to his disciples, a new commandment, John 13, I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How will others know that we are Christians if we have love for one another? This is the same exhortation that he's giving here. I have no reason to tell you about love. You know that you should love one another because you're Christians. What did Paul tell the church of Galatians? The fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is in you, if you've given your life to Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, what is it? Love. And then he says, joy, peace, patience. Did you know that's all the characteristics of love? That means that when your life is filled with love, the Spirit of God, the characteristic of love is joy. The characteristic of love is peace. The characteristic of love is, is now patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's self-control. This is how love is demonstrated. What is he saying to them? Lust is forbidden. He's already explained that but love is required. Remember that this morning when you think about what the Lord has called you to do. Lust is forbidden, but love is required. This is how we are to love each other more. Now notice, the explanation of love is here, brotherly love. But the extent of it continues in verse 10. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Here's the extent of love. Notice he uses one word twice in that verse, and it's the word all. I want you to circle that in your Bible as a Bible student this morning. He says, indeed, you do love one another. And notice what it says here. You love all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. You don't just love some people. How easy is it sometimes in our flesh? We'll say, well, we love this group of people, but that group of people, we don't love them. <laughs> the Bible says that we are to love even those that are difficult to love, even loving the unlovely, <laughs> those that God is using in our lives to teach us to deny self and to demonstrate the love of God for them as well. And here he says here, you are doing it well. You show this well. You're already doing this. In fact, you're doing it to all people in Macedonia, to all the believers, to all the brethren. You're doing it without partiality. You're doing that without any type of prejudice or hypocrisy or any type of division to all of those that are in the church of Macedonia. 
It's well known you're doing it. You have a good record in doing it. The church knows that you're a loving person. In fact, he's already now told them in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he says, I remember now without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love. I remember how loving you are. In 2 Thessalonians, or in 1 Thessalonians 3.6, he then goes, he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, he's brought us good news of your faith and of your love. People knew them because of their love. That today maybe you've come and you said, well, I think I'm already a pretty loving person. <laughs> People already know that I am loving. Well, here's the encouragement even for you. How are we to love people? Notice, well, what practical way are we to know that we are truly loving other people? Pay attention in the Bible when you're talking about love that you pay attention to the one another's in Scripture. You know what the one another's in Scripture are? Every time it says one another, this is how you love people. In fact, I'm going to give you a few that you would write them down today. One another's that would teach you how to love each other more. In Galatians 5.13, it would say this, serve one another. You want to know how you are to love one another? Well, serve one another. Then Ephesians 4.32, Paul says this, forgive one another. This is how you love people more. You serve them, you forgive them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, show hospitality to one another. What does that mean? You have an open heart, you have an open hand as well. You have an open home as well. You want to serve, you want to forgive, you want to show hospitality. These are acts of kindness. Galatians 6, 2, bearing one another's burdens. What does that mean? That you carry each other's burdens. Do you have compassion? That you're willing to suffer with other people's needs? That you want to meet their needs as well? Romans 14, 13, notice, if you are to love one another more, it says here, not judging one another. If we're loving one another, it means that we don't criticize and we don't judge. Colossians 3, 9, finally, a last one that I want to give to you, not lying to one another. These are all now the one another's in Scripture, just a few of them, so that we have a picture of what it looks to love one another, to increase in our love for one another. So what is he doing here? He's not exhorting them to acquire something that they didn't already possess. You can't say today, well, I'm excused from this one. This doesn't apply to me because I already love people. No, he's encouraging them to get more of what they're already enjoying. Today, if you love someone, go get more of what you're enjoying and love them again. Go that extra mile, continue to serve them, that other people would know you by the love that you have, and it's the love of Jesus Christ. In fact, notice here, it's not only the extent, but the expansion of it, the second half of verse 10, it would say this, we urge you, I know you're doing it, but, you're doing a good job, but, have you ever heard someone maybe give you an encouragement, that, you know what, hey, I want to tell you something, you're doing really good, and you're always waiting for the buts, right? Well, wait, wait, well tell me, where I, what do I need to work on? Well, here he's saying, you are loving people, but we urge you, we plead with you, we encourage you. Notice, brethren, that you increase more and more. I'm urging you, he's saying. Brethren, increase. What does it mean? Excel, grow. There's always room for growth. Today you may say, well, I'm thinking about that person that I've already loved enough and I've given them many opportunities and I've always served them. Even when you think that you've loved that person enough, I want you to know that you haven't. We are called to love even more so. You'll never arrive at the place of being perfectly loving. So the encouragement here is not to be complacent. It's to not be content with how much love you have given. Why? Because love must give more. Remember that. Love must give more. It never quits. It doesn't have a quota that says, you know what, I'm done loving. This is as much as I'll do, and I won't pass beyond this specific standard for that person. No, love gets more. Someone says that love is like the Niagara Falls. It never ceases to pour itself out. Just think about that picture, a waterfall that never is empty, that is always consistently running, pouring itself out. That is the type of love that a Christian should have. So he says, even so continue to grow more and more. 
Love is a growing experience. That's why, that's why when we're walking with Jesus Christ, our love for him grows. In fact, today, ask yourself, do I love Jesus more than I did three years ago? More than I did last year? Because if you're walking with him, that means you're getting to know him more. And if you're getting to know him more, that means that you'll love him more. We are to love Christ more. And out of an outflow of that relationship, we'll love one another more. What is this? It's the circulatory system of the body of Christ. And when the spiritual muscles of that body of Christ are not exercised, the circulation is impaired. There's no love flowing in the church. We need to exercise love. Now, how does God cause you to love and for your love to increase? You would say, well, how am I supposed to do that? How is my love going to increase more and more as he's exhorting them right now? God does this by putting us in circumstances that force us to practice Christian love. Have you ever been in traffic? <laughs> God's given you the opportunity to love people around you. Have you ever had a partner with someone that maybe you don't like at work? God's given you the opportunity to love people. Have you ever had to serve with someone that you maybe think it's difficult? God is giving you the opportunity to love people. This is how he grows us up in love. This is how he matures us by giving us opportunities through circumstances and difficulties to love one another. These are opportunities for us to grow in our love. This explains why many people that have difficulties with one another, they go through trials with one another, because of that, they end up having a deep love and affection for each other. Because God put them in a situation that they could not get through unless they humble themselves and start loving each other. So then they become best of friends. I want you to know something, even as we look at these verses, don't wait for someone else to love you first. How many times do you say, well, I'll love them. I'm just waiting for them to come to me and love me and tell me what I need to hear, what I want, or I'm waiting for an apology. No, that is not the brotherly love, phileo, Christian love that Christ is calling you to do. We are to initiate love. I want you to remember that. You are to be initiators of love. Show the initiative when it comes to love. That it would be without hypocrisy. In Romans 12, verse 9, it would say this, let love be without hypocrisy. What does that mean? When you tell someone you love them, when you show them you love them, you don't turn around and you talk about, bad about them. You don't say that, you know what, I just love a certain group of people, but these other people, I, I just have no heart for them. No, it says let love be without any type of hypocrisy in your heart. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectioned to one another in brotherly love. What does it mean to have brotherly love again? To be kind, to be gentle. In honor, notice, giving preference to one another. That's what brotherly love looks like. It looks like you giving honor to someone else. It looks like you giving preference to someone else. It looks like you being kind to other people. That's the brotherly love that he's exhorting us to remain in. I remember a story hearing about a missionary team uh, that went out to a very primitive part of the world. And as they were out there, it was in the jungles with, where missions teams were for the first time ever going in airplanes out to the mission field. And as they went, they had an accident in this airplane and there was a catastrophe where everyone died except one man. And every form of communication was gone. And this man had suffered just brain damage that he could not even speak. But the natives of that area in that jungle surrounded him. They started to treat him and they now helped him get back into health. And over months and time and time again, then he lived with them and he survived that accident. Well, it was 20 years later that someone, a missions team, came to that very same place, not knowing what had happened. And they start to preach the gospel to these natives. And they're talking about a Jesus that loves, a Jesus that died for them on their sins, and they're reading the Bible and giving an exhortation, just receive Jesus. He loves you so much. He gave his life for you. You would not understand how much he loves you. And these natives are listening to the story. They're paying close attention. And before they say, would you like to receive him into your heart? They, they, they have a translator and an interpreter, and they say, stop, stop, stop the story before you tell us anymore. That man that you're talking about, 
He lives here with us. Let, let me, let's, we're going to go get him. This man, without the ability to speak, had for 20 years been serving and loving them, not knowing their language. That's the kind of love that we should demonstrate, that when people talk about the love of God, others would say, I know how that looks like because I have a friend, because I have a brother, because I have an uncle, because I know a person that's a Christian, and they demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. That's the love that we as Christians should demonstrate. He says that your love would grow even more and more. But the second exhortation for Christian essential growth is lead a quiet life. This doesn't have to do with progress. This has to do with purpose. Love each other more, lead a quiet life. Notice verse 11, it says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. Christians today, as you're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, not only should you be dedicated to loving each other more, you should also be committed to leading a quiet life. Now notice the word aspire and circle that in your Bible because it speaks of ambition. That your ambition would be a godly one in life. That you would have the correct ambition. As, as you're waiting for Christ to return, make sure that you have the right ambition. And the word aspire means to demonstrate, to dedicate, to show effort, to show devotion. In fact, aspire means to study. We're studying how to live a quiet life. It's our aim. It's our ambition. It's our goal. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, 9? Therefore, we make it our aim. We make it our focus. Whether to be present or absent from the Lord, to be well-pleasing to Him. What is the concentration, the focus of a Christian? What is the ambition that we should have? To lead a quiet life. Now, he doesn't mean here a lack of activity. But what he's saying here that you would have an inner quietness and peace. Do you see here that he's speaking about peace, about calmness? I should not have to tell you to love one another and to aspire to have peace that is befitting a Christian, to have rest, to have satisfaction. This is the opposite of a person that is struggling with restlessness or that's panicking. In fact, what he's saying in light of the return of Jesus Christ, and in light of your present circumstances today, lead a quiet life. This always happens only possible as you're seeking the glory of God. Why? Because when selfish ambition, when pride is governing our lives, when that's the only thing we think about ourselves, there, there can only be unrest. You'll never be happy. You'll always be fighting with other people. Never satisfied. There's unrest. Because selfish ambition is at the core of what you're doing. But when Christ is controlling, when Christ is governing our lives, then there will be rest. You know, there, there's another translation that would read this verse this way. Make it your ambition to stay out of the limelight. That you wouldn't need attention. Or be ambitious to have no ambition that it wouldn't be about ourselves. And here he's saying that very thing. This is a, a, a it contradicts a life of, of attention, of everybody wanting to say, well, I want attention, I want people to look at me, or I want to be first, or always wanting to be entertained, or being overly excited. No, lead a quiet life. You know what that means? You're not complaining. You're not arguing. You're not criticizing. You're not talking bad about one another. You don't have a bad attitude towards people. And how does that begin? With learning what it means to be quiet. You can't live a quiet life if you're always talking. In fact, it says you're a quiet life so you know and you take time to listen to God. Notice, increase in love for one another, but also lead a quiet life so that you listen to God and you know him better. You know, another form of what it describes here to lead a quiet life means to keep your seat. When they would say keep or lead a quiet life, keep your seat. You know what it means? Just sit down and relax. Keep your mouth closed sometimes. Don't say anything. Some of us need to hear that today so that we don't go around creating problems. There's so many people that are striving, they're anxious, they're frustrated, they're not living or leading a quiet life, so they're unsatisfied in themselves 
and never can experience rest. Here he's talking about a life that experiencing rest. They are not going around causing explosions. You're not insubordinate to authority. You're not resisting authority. You're not living a life of disorder. Instead, be diligent, not rebellious, not undisciplined in behavior. What does the world want to teach right now? If you don't like what you're told, just resist. Just give your opinion. Just fight back. No, the emphasis here is in the quietness of a mind and heart of inner peace that enables a person to be sufficient through their faith in Jesus Christ. Just lead a quiet life. You don't have to be so loud. You don't have to have attention all the time. You don't have to resist or argue or fight back or kick against the goads. That's not the life that you need to live as Christ is coming back. Lead a quiet life. Notice number three, the third exhortation here, it says, to mind your own business. See, I didn't make that up. It says it in the Bible. (laughs) To mind your own business. Some of us need to learn this hard truth. You know what it begins with? With loving each other more. If you love one another more, then you'll lead a quiet life. And a part of leading a quiet life is knowing how to mind your own business. There are some people that are so anxious because they can't accept the result. They can't accept the outcome. They can't accept not being in control. You're not supposed to be in control. You know who's in control? God is in control. The Holy Spirit's in control. So lead a quiet life and mind your own business. Now, what is he telling them this? Why is this important? Because they're to be focused on what God has called them to do in their life. Not meddling in other people's business. Not always talking about other people. Don't be a busybody that you think you need to be involved in everyone's life or you are the answer to everyone's problems. You know, usually people that are running around in other people's affairs, they don't know how to run their own affairs well. And every time they hear about something, what, are they, what will they do? They'll call someone, they'll gossip, they'll talk about them. He says, no, don't do that. Mind your own business. You don't always have to have something to say. You don't always have to give an opinion. You don't always have to give your side. You don't always have to offer what you think. You don't have to do that. Just mind your own business. You see, nobody gets in trouble for minding their own business. It's usually when you're minding someone else's business that creates problems. We should be those people that are so focused. What has God told you to do? But you'll say, but what about them? What what about that person? What are they doing? How come they're not committed like I am? Or are they coming? Are they going? What are they doing? You do what God called you to do and lead a quiet life. He's telling them here to live a life that is in order, being a good testimony to other people. You know what you should do? Focus, and as some people would say, just stay in your lane. (laughs) Don't try to cut into other people's lanes. You do what God called you to do. Mind your own business. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, it would say, For we hear that there are some of you, notice what he says again, that are walking among in a disorderly manner. What's the disorderly manner? You're causing confusion. You're resisting. You're causing now problems. They're not working at all, but they're busy bodies. They're not working. Instead of working, what are they doing? They're going from one place to the other, involving themselves in things that do not belong to them. They have no business in those things. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. You know what the word of God tells us? Just work quietly and eat your own bread. And it's tomorrow when you go to work, just just work quietly and then go eat your lunch. (laughs) That you wouldn't want to cause attention to yourself. That you wouldn't be the one in the office that's creating problems. That you wouldn't be the one that comes in with a bad attitude. That you wouldn't be the one that thinks that everything revolves around you. I want to tell you this, because it doesn't. Lead a quiet life. Be submissive. And mind your own business. 
First Peter chapter 4, verse 15 says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer. He says, Don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't suffer as an evildoer. And you know what it puts there after that? A murderer, a thief, an evildoer. It also says, and as a busybody. <laughs> Some of us are in problems that God never called us to be a part of. But because you want to give an opinion, because you want to give a suggestion, because you want to solve a problem, now you're in a problem that God never told you to be a part of. Mind your own business. Don't suffer as a busybody in other people's matters. That doesn't belong to you. That is none of your business. You know what we need to do to keep our eyes on the Lord? Stop looking around. Do you remember when Jesus was having breakfast with his disciples? And Jesus was telling Peter, Peter, do you love me? He was restoring him. And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. He says, no, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, I do. Then tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? One more time. Peter says, you know what? Lord, you know all things. You know, of course I love you. Feed my sheep one more time. And then he calls him back into the ministry. He calls him to follow him. You know what Jesus, what Peter says? He, he, he now is called by Christ himself to follow him. And notice what he does. Turning around, he saw the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said, but Lord, what about this man? How many times does the Lord tell you to do something? And instead of keeping your eyes on him, you know what the problem is? We're also turning around and we're looking at other people. What about this person, Lord? What about that person? What about my coworker? What about he? What about she? Turning around. Don't turn around. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because every time you turn around, you have an excuse, and it sounds like this, but Lord. But Lord, objecting, resisting, arguing with the will of God. Don't argue with the will of God. Mind your own business. Do what he called you to do. You know what Jesus responded when he said, but Lord, what about this man? He said to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what's that to you? Peter, that's none of your business. You follow me. You don't get involved. You follow, you consistently, continually follow me. Well, you would say, well, I don't, you don't understand what people are doing. They're coming, they're going, they're going this direction, they're saying this, they're saying that. Forget about that. You follow Jesus Christ. Or else you'll get lost because you're following man and you're not following the Lord. When, you, when you're not minding your business, you get confused because you start to hear the voice of man more than you're hearing the voice of God. And too many times, that's what happens. You want to be a part of everything you hear, and then you start being led by man and not by God. Love each other more. Lead a quiet life submissively. Mind your own business. And number three, work with your own hands. Notice your... The second half of verse 11. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. We already told you this. You have to recognize the dignity, the honor of hard work. Work with your own hands. You know that manual labor was despised by the ancient Greek culture. In fact, they saw it as something that was less. In fact, if, if, if a man was better... He was exempt from any type of manual labor. They would consider him, this person is, is better in social status because they don't work in manual labor. That's what the Greek culture thought. But in contrast, you know what Jesus gave us? He, he himself was a carpenter king. God taught us through these fishermen apostles. God showed us through missionary tent makers. All work with their hands. They were given over to hard work. Now, why does he tell them this, work with your own hands? Because nowhere does the Bible endorse laziness. As you are to wait for the coming of the Lord, you are not to be lazy. Don't waste time. Work is God's plan and God's progress, not only for society, but for the Christian. You know, we fall into Satan's snare when we expect things to come easily to us. When we expect people to just give us handouts. Or we start to think of God's blessing as an excuse for irresponsibility. You know, the culture today, it's sad, the generation that's being raised today, they rather 
not work and get paid than work and get paid. That's not what he's saying. He says, mind your own business and work hard. As we commanded you, this is an order. This is coming from God's word. Why some of them think, well, you know what? I don't have to work hard. Jesus is coming. I can be laid back. I can be relaxed. Or notice this, I can depend on other people. If you're able, if you have hands, if the Lord's giving you strength and he's made a way, notice he doesn't want you to depend on other people. He wants you to work with your own hands. That's what he says, your own. <laughs> because he's giving them to you to work with. In fact, Luke 19, 13, do you remember when Jesus is giving this parable? So he called the 10 servants, delivered them 10 minus, and he said, do business till I come. What is he saying? Occupy, stay busy. Christian today, stay busy. Do work, be faithful, be diligent. Whatever God called you to do, whatever it is, if you dedicate yourself fully to being a teacher, then do it with the hard work that God has given you and the ability. If it's to raise your children, then do it with the effort and work that God has given you. Minding your own business, leading a quiet life, occupying until Christ comes. Did you know that Paul was careful to set a good example of hard work? Even in the second time he wrote to the Thessalonians, he wrote this, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. We told you this. Why are you not working? In fact, he says, if any of you not work, neither shall he eat. Isn't that amazing how he sets that standard? <laughs> if you're not going to work, then you're not going to eat. You know why he says this? Because if you don't give them food, what is that person that is able to work and not willing to work? They're going to get hungry and then they'll find a job. <laughs> so he says that as well. Colossians 3, 3, and whatever you do hardly, do it as to the Lord and not to man. Now what happens when you combine love to your brother with work that God has given you? Notice, we walk properly. And that's verse 12 as we conclude. That you may walk properly, that you may walk properly. This is the result. This is the outcome. God desires that you live a life properly until he comes. What does the word proper mean? It means decent. What does the word proper mean? It means in order. It means honesty. It's the same word that it uses in 1 Corinthians 10, 40, do things decently and in order. This is exactly what it explains right here, that your life, your walk as a Christian would be decent and it would be in order. This means it's good, it's decent, it's an honorable manner. It causes no stumbling to believers. And we should not be indifferent to the impact that's produced by our example. We're to have a good testimony to the unbelievers so that they see our example and their influence to Christ Jesus. They see our commitment to Christ. In fact, it would say this in verse 12, toward those who are where? Outside. You shouldn't only have a good testimony to the people that are in church. You should have a good testimony to the people that are not at church. And your testimony should be displayed by the love and the work that you do that people say this person's life is in order. It's not out of order. That you would not be a Christian that is delinquent in your commitments. That you would have things in order, have a good testimony. You would not be outstanding when it comes to these commitments. Notice, you would have such a good commitment to the people that are outside that, that, notice, they would see Christ in you and they would be drawn to Jesus Christ at the same time. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, would say this, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. What does God have for the church, for Christians? That we would walk in wisdom to the people that are unbelievers. Redeeming the time. Don't waste time. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, moreover, for the person that wants to serve in the ministry, he must have a good testimony to those who are outside. Not just in the church. People at church didn't say, well, you know what? This person is such a great person. But at work, they would say, well, he's a Christian? I can't, what, what in the world? I would, we would have never thought. Those that are outside should know because of your love and a life that is orderly that you're walking according to Christ. And notice how he ends here. He says that you may lack nothing. 
that you may not be depending on other people. What would they have done there? They quit their jobs and they said, well, you know what? I'm not going to work because I'm spiritual. I'm waiting on Jesus. Let me just live off of what you do. Say, no, you're not going to do that. You must be ready for Christ. You must be working with your hands, able to give. This is the obligation, not only to love one another, but also have a good testimony to the people that are in this world. This is his concern for the church. That each should earn their wage and not depend on other people for handouts or the support of other people, and they would lack nothing. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, think about the exhortation here, especially for those of the household of, the, of their own household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you don't provide for the, your own in your house, you've denied the faith, he says, and it's worse than someone that doesn't believe is actually providing. He says you have a bad testimony. You're bringing a bad reputation to the faith because you're not loving and because you're not being faithful to work. You see, here he speaks about a life that is in order, that is blameless, that has integrity. How are these practical principles essential in our lives? Well, holiness, an obedient Christian means that he'll walk into holiness abstaining from sin. An obedient Christian will also walk in harmony loving other people in honesty. An obedient Christian will also walk working with their own hands and minding their own business. You see why this is so important? So that we live a life above reproach. And he's telling them, as you wait for the return of Jesus Christ, live a life above reproach, that you bring a good testimony to the family of faith. What do we do? Love each other more. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and work with your own hands. Let's pray.